morning, church. My name is Hannah, and I serve on our Student Life team. Just two quick announcements this morning. If you're a first-time visitor, or perhaps you've been attending for a little while and want to get to know us a little bit better, we would love to connect with you. Simply scan the QR code on your seat to check out various opportunities for next steps. Or you can fill out a Connect card in the seat back in front of you and drop it in any of the boxes you see in the Worship Center or at our welcome desk. Our volunteers and staff at the desk would also love to say hello. Ask about our First Steps adult community group, which will be starting in June. That would be a great place to jump into connection. Lastly, are you ready for a classic church picnic? I'm talking hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken, activities for the little ones, and activities for you bigger kids, and just hanging out on the church lawn, enjoying good food and good fellowship. Well, on Sunday, June 5th, we're going to gather as one church family. Wheaton Bible Church, Tri-Village Church, and Iglesia del Pueblo to celebrate all that God has done in our midst this past year. The picnic will take place on the west lawn of the church property from 3 to 7 p.m. Food will be served from 4 to 6 p.m. We'll have some reserved seating for those with limited mobility, so please plan to bring your own lawn chairs and some blankets to enjoy the afternoon. There's no need to RSVP and no charge to attend. I hope to see you there. You can check out wheatonbible.org picnic for more information. That's all I have for you this morning. Thanks for starting your week in worship with us, and we hope you have an amazing week. Good morning. I'm looking forward to doing all those fun things together with all of you. Uh, welcome to God's family gathering today. Each of us comes with our own joys and sorrows this morning, but we trust that God will meet each and every one of us where we're at and use the body to encourage us as we're here together. Psalm 28, 6 through 9 says, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's stand and sing together.
please be seated. Oh, we've celebrated God's power and his might, and let's take a few moments to ask our mighty, powerful, loving God to convict us of our sin and give us the grace that he offers us through Jesus Christ. We'll pray silently on our own for a moment. God, we praise you that you assure us of the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Psalm 32 states, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. God, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Amen. Now we'll sing a song by Dr. Payne, helping us to remember those truths and throughout the week and today. And handily, this song was inspired by Tim Botts in one of his paintings. So I don't know if he's here today, but we celebrate all that God does even throughout the body, encouraging and inspiring new works of art, uh, proclaiming God's faithfulness. So let's stand and sing this together. about King Jesus and how King Herod wanted to make King Jesus, he wanted to murder him. And so, uh, so many things that against this world we have and we can rest in the fact that God is the ruler of this world yet. Let's sing.
Hear these words from the Lord, Jehovah, your Father, from Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? May these words the choir sings give us great joy in the fact that God is indeed making all things new.
What a beautiful and amazing phrase. He is making all things new. You know, most of my theology has been based on that, you know. I have full confidence that the Lord is making all things new, that when Jesus came as a baby and then lived the life that no one has lived and died the death that we all deserve and then resurrected is because he's making all things new. Suffering will be one day will be no more. Struggling one day will be no more. Tears one day will be no more. Pain one day will be no more. And we are experiencing right now our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ making all things new. And one day we're going to get to see that and embrace that. Isn't that beautiful? How about if we give, give glory to God for that? But if I tell you that this is the reason why yesterday we all participated in CareFest, it's because we believe that the Lord is making all things new, that we are contributing to what he's doing as we go into our community and serve people and love people with our hands, with our actions, with our, with our words, with our minds. How many of you guys participated in CareFest yesterday? Can you please, by show of hands, look at that, look at around. This is a small fraction of 620. Yeah, give him glory. This is a small fraction of our church that participated in CareFest yesterday. Over 600 people yesterday uh, spent a good portion of their Saturday loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Over 60 different project sites, different locations. I got the chance to serve um, at OCM, one of our partners in ministry, Outreach Community um, Center. Uh, and I got to tell you, man, I, I was killing it. Um, I was doing such a great job. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to say. Well, yes, he was. But 
It was beautiful to see that there's a group of brothers and sisters loving our neighbors. We don't have to get anything in exchange, you know, because everything that we could possibly want, we already have in Jesus, always giving a little bit of what we already uh, received. You have no idea how significant it is that a church like ours will go into a community and do the things we do. And today we want to share with you a few images so you could capture what the Lord was doing in and through you. Let's, uh, let's pay attention to this video. This is my first year volunteering with CareFest. I think I really missed that aspect of church, of being the hands and feet and being out with like your community. Saw the announcement for CareFest at church. Um, I was like, I have to do that. I have to get my hands and feet and kind of get back to that nitty gritty. I did actually get them very dirty <laughs> today, <laughs> yes. El servicio en CareFest para mí es la primera vez que lo hago. Me parece maravilloso porque es una oportunidad de mostrarle a la comunidad que la iglesia está comprometida con ellos. It's my first care fest. We're at Oak Hill Elementary and I'm super excited to be here because I was actually a student at Oak Hill about 20 years ago. It's just really awesome to be able to, you know, give back to my community. This is our first time. My husband and I are visitors. Today we are demolishing a fence, an interior fence that was kind of a mess and taking down a shed that looks like it's got some critters that have lived in it more than people using it. It needs a little bit of love. <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to get involved and, and like our worship time this morning said, be the hands and feet of Christ. As a church, we truly are seeking out people and wanting to help them and not asking anything in return. Estamos tratando de transmitir la, la bendición de Dios a través del servicio. Jesús dijo en el Evangelio que Él no vino para ser servido, sino para servir. Y así rescató la vida de muchos. Nosotros estamos sirviendo como iglesia para también transmitir esa bendición y transmitir el evangelio. We're with the uh, with the veterans of foreign wars of VFW. These guys here uh, have done amazing things for this country. So uh, this is the least we can do for them uh, to kind of beautify these grounds, especially through a Christian organization like Wheaton Bible Church. We're at Oak Hill Elementary uh, School here. We've repainted a couple hot scotches. We're painting. Um, words of encouragement, uh, affirmation, and we're adding um, some new plants and flowers uh, for landscaping within the front of the school. Today, uh, we're helping Amy and her mom do a lot of the landscape weeding. We have some people that are doing some painting for us, and we have uh, someone extending a deck out in the back for to accommodate my mom's walker. It's awesome to have a community around you, uh, just to lift you up and uh, just help. My dad passed away 12 years ago. So it's just me and my mom. And also my mom has recently in the last couple of years become disabled. So it's harder for her to get outside. So we're just making some more room for her to get out, be able to take her walker, sit down on the porch, enjoy a nice day. So it's just awesome having the support, the help, um, just the love from the church. To see young children out here just planting flowers, doing different things is, is touching. What my dad would say, he passed years ago, but he would have a tear as I see this because we're doing something for them. And I don't think they see that too often these days. So something as simple as a, a VFW lodge, a small little place, the stories inside that building are amazing. So for them to look out the window and see people doing something for them is real special. When kids walk here on Monday morning and see that their blacktop has been painted, new flowers have been planted, you know, they get a sense of pride like, wow, this is my school and somebody actually came out and did this for us.
I got uh, one quick story to share. Um, right after CareFest, our student ministries uh, decided to put this picnic together for the students and their families. Um, and as they're gathering there and having fun, one, uh, someone mentioned that one of our sites uh, didn't get to get done because there was no volunteers for them. So a group of our students decided that after the picnic, they will gather and go to that site and finish that project. This is just to show you how the Lord puts these things in our hearts and makes us useful for his glory and his kingdom. So I want to thank you. I want to thank all of you, those of you that decided to step up because you could. Uh, I want to thank you for your commitment to the church and your love for your neighbor. Um, I'm going to invite you to continue to pray. Uh, for connections with our community, because at the end of the day, we don't, want to, we don't want just to serve our community. We want our community to come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray for divine appointments, and, and we pray for opportunities for us to get to know people in our community, and not only serve them physically, but we serve them with the gospel. Amen? So once again, thank you, and we give all glory to God. Now, all of this is to say that what we do as a church matters. Amen? And that things like this in our community matter. Amen? And that's why money matters. And that's why generosity matters. Because this is one of the things that the Lord allows us to do because of the generosity of the church. And one of the things that we want to do as a church uh, at least once a quarter is to give you uh, an update from the platform on where we are financially. So even though we just celebrated, let me bring a little bit of, 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 of you could say, sad news, but not so we could be sad, so we could pray and give. Amen? So for the last quarter, which is ended in, in April, <clears throat> um, we, we are about $500,000 uh, below our budget, meaning that, uh, that as we step into this second quarter, we are not in a very healthy financial position. Now, I am the type that trusts the Lord as much as I could in everything I can. So I'm not super worried about this yet because the Lord has always provided but I'm not saying that so you are off the hook. <laughs> because if this is your church, you are committed to this church both in prayer and financially. Amen? If this is the place where the Lord brought you, if this is the place where the Lord fits your soul and when your family is growing, I think that we all have before the Lord a commitment, a financial commitment to that church. So I wanna, I'm inviting you to please pray, and I'm inviting you to please give. We don't want to finish our year the same way we finished. I mean, we finished really well, but we don't want to struggle the way we struggled last year. So I want to invite you to please join us by praying and by giving. I want to thank all of you. There's a ton of us that are super committed financially to the church, and I'm so thankful for you. And yet, there's many of us that need to step up to the plate. So I want to invite you to join us and pray for this. Uh, the Lord is good. The Lord always provides. The Lord always sustains. There is no reason to be afraid. And yet, we've got to take this serious. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that when, even when we, uh, when we struggle, the way we're struggling financially, we don't lose hope. Because at the end of the day, Lord, you are the one that provides. You are the one that sustains. You are the one that gives us what the church needs. Lord, we put this money, this, this reality before you, and we ask you, Lord, to provide. I pray, Lord, that you bless my brothers and sisters, 
uh, those of them that are already committed to the church. And I pray, Lord, to, that you speak to my brothers and sisters that are not yet committed financially to the church. At the end of the day, Lord, we don't give because we have to. And we don't give because we need to buy anything from you. We give because we have a generous God and we want to reflect what that generous God is doing in our lives. Please help us become generous people more and more. Not just because the church needs it, but because with this money, Lord, we get to continue to do things like Carefest. And people continue to see that you love them, that you care for them, and that you are invested in them. Could you please speak to us this morning? Could you please open up the, uh, our eyes, our hearts, our minds, Lord, that so we could understand, believe, and apply? Could you please, Lord, bless the preaching of your word? And I pray, Lord, that you continue to work in us and through us. All this for, name, uh, for the glory of your name. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. You can find this on page 14 in the journals, or you can read along on the screens above. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, and where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, then what was said throughout the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Achaelius was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, good morning, familia. 
For those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Hannibal, um, and I want to welcome you all. As always, I want to welcome those of you that are here worshiping with us in person, and I also want to welcome those of you that are worshiping with us online. Um, we are so glad that you're here. We are so glad that you're, you have chosen to worship with us this morning. And I have to say that this is a great season to be part of the church, not just because of the things that we just saw with Kerfess and things like that, but because we are... Um, at the beginning of this new series that is going to take us close to two years, uh, about 70 weeks, in which we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we have called this series The King and His Kingdom. Now, if you notice, um, in different parts of the church, we have these 12 different icons, if you will, or symbols, and part of the reason why we have that is because we have divided the Gospel of Matthew into 12 different parts. We are currently doing part one, and this is week three of part one, in which we are basically getting an introduction into who Jesus is. And that's why we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. So if you have your journal, my um, suggestion to you is that you use it to underline, to make notes, to uh, do little, I don't know, whatever cartoons you want to do, put them in there. Because what we want at the end of the day is not only that you are interacting uh, with the scripture, with the preacher in the middle, but that you interact with the scripture yourself. Amen? Now, um, the section we just read uh, is, is part of the Christmas story. It's right at the beginning when Jesus comes and becomes a baby. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that this section we just read is kind of the, the dark side of the Christmas story. Like, I don't know about you, but I never heard of a Christmas carol that talks about this king that is killing babies. Right? Like, I, we never sang that song. And yet, that story is part of the Christmas story. It actually gives us a glimpse of what the uh, life of Jesus would look like since he was a baby all the way when he goes to the cross. It will be a life of suffering and persecution and rejection. But at the same time, this story shows us something about the character and nature of God. I want you to listen to me really well, church. That even though there are things that are going all the times wrong, God is always working amid darkness. And that therefore, if you really pay attention, you could always find beauty in the midst of brokenness. If there's one thing that you know about, that we know about the gospel, is that God is always working amid brokenness, and there's always beauty in the midst of pain. So that's how I'm, I'm inviting you to read this text this morning. Because even though it's a dark passage, I want you to see the beauty in it. And there we're going to find and we see three things about Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is the, uh, the new and better king. Number two, that Jesus brings uh, the new and better kingdom. And that Jesus is the new and better everything. Can you say new and better? You're going to hear that phrase time and time again as I preach through the sermon. So I need you to look at uh, the person next to you and ask the, question, ask the question, did you know that Jesus is the new and better king? Go ahead. All right, let's go with the first point. Jesus is the new and better king. 
If you were here last week, um, or if you have been with us since we started the, the series, but in specific last week, or if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you might remember that last week we talked about, there's a section where he talks that the Magi goes to King Herod, and the one thing they say to him is that they're looking for the King of the Jews. Do you remember that? That is one of the titles that Jesus receives in the Gospel of Matthew. He is the King of the Jews. Now, what is interesting, though, is that the, the Magi are telling the king that there's another king in town. So I don't know how, if you were the king, how would you feel if somebody shows up and says, look, and I'm looking for the new king in town. Now, the text doesn't say much about this king, but history does. And history tells us that King Herod was a cruel man, that he had the tendency to kill and execute anybody that would be a an inconvenience to him. So, for example, we know from history that he killed a bunch of family members because he wanted to stay in power. We also know from history that he was willing to kill one of his wives because he wanted to stay in power. We also know from history that this man wanted, was willing to kill religious people and people that were part of the government just to stay in power. So, from history, we could see that this king had major issues with control, power, and dominion. And anything and anyone who would be a threat to him had to be executed. Now, the reason why I start with that is because I want you to try to imagine what this king is feeling when he hears that King Jesus is the new king in town. See, the way he's processing all of this is he's saying, well, if Jesus is king, then that means that I'm not. See, the way he's processing this is that he knows that there could only be one king in town, that it was going to be either him or Jesus. See, the way he's processing this is that he knows that if Jesus is king, that means that at one point he will be dethroned. And it also means that at one point he will be in submission to this new king. And it also means that at one point he was not going to be able to live his life the way he wanted, if he wanted to submit, because he had to submit to this king. So what does he do? Well, the same thing that he's been doing throughout his life. So that's why the Bible says that an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph through a dream, and the angel tells Joseph this that you find in verse 13. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. See, this is a man that wants to hold on to power so and so much. This is a man that is uh, so intoxicated and is so hungry for control and recognition and position that he's willing to do the unthinkable. He's willing to kill babies, kids, just to kill Jesus. Verse 16, for example, he says that when Herod realized that, he, that, the, that the, Magi, the, the Magi tricked them, he was furious. Hope you can notice that that's not just angry or bothered, but furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem that were two years younger, two years or younger. That's crazy. That's crazy because he's going, about, he's going against the vulnerable ones. He's willing to do anything to stay in power and to hold control. Now, because of the size of those towns in those places, 
We know that the population in that area had to be somewhere between 200 people and maybe 1,000 people in a, large, in, a, in a large town, meaning that he probably killed somewhere between 20 to 40 kids in one round. Now, some people might say, well, it's only 30 kids. That's not the point. The point is that he was willing to kill and execute anything or anyone that will be anyone that will be a threat to his throne. Anyone that will be a threat to his sovereignty and control. Anyone that will be a threat to, to his independence. Remember, his logic is simple. If Jesus is king, that means that I'm not. If Jesus is king, that means then that I will be the throne. If Jesus is king, then that means that I have to submit to him. And if Jesus is king, that means that I can no longer live for myself, but I must live for him. Now, I'm going to say something that Pastor Brent mentioned right at the end of his sermon last week, which I found super interesting. And I remember that there's a similarity between what Brent said and something that John Stott said in his book, Basic Christianity. This is what John uh, Stott says in his book. If you read the Bible, you will see that nobody whoever, that whoever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus in the Gospels. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away from him. Or they were uh, absolutely smitten by him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. You guys remember he mentioned something similar to that last week. Notice that both Brent last week and John Stott says that no one has a neutral reaction to Jesus. Everyone responds to Jesus somehow. Some people either really love him, some other people are really afraid of him and run from him, but there's some other people that find him a threat. Someone that needs to be eradicated and eliminated. Why? Because if Jesus is king, then I'm not. Let me say that again. If Jesus is king, then I'm not. How about if I tell you, church, that we all have a little bit of that in our hearts? How about if I tell you that we all carry a little Herod inside our hearts? How about if I tell you that when we struggle with our sin and we surrender to our sin, it's because we don't want Jesus to be the king of our lives. How about if I tell you that when we struggle and when we sin, it's because we feel, which is completely wrong, but we feel that Jesus is out of his jurisdiction. How about if I tell you that many times we struggle because we, even though as Christians we may see Jesus as king, our sinful nature feels this fight within, this fight about power. Why? Because if Jesus is king, then I'm not. So this is family, right? Every time I say that, you know that I'm going to ask you a really serious question. So how many of us here have ever felt that the Lord tells you something and then you feel something like, no one get to tell me what to do? <laughs> Including Jesus. See, I think that we all struggle like this. 
And if you don't struggle what, like this, then that means that you are Jesus. How about if I tell you that even as believers, we have to pay attention to what Herod had because we have something similar to that. And if you're not convinced of that just yet, I'm about to make my point clear. All right, so I need you to do me a favor, look at the person next to you and ask the question, are you ready? Go ahead, go ahead. Now, you turn around and say, no, 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 no. Are you ready? Go ahead, go ahead. I'm going to give you three statements about Jesus. And I want us to be honest before the Lord. Because there is a significance why the Gospel of Matthew talks so much about Jesus being king right at the beginning. Listen up, church. This is off the notes. So this could go in so many different ways. If we struggle with seeing Jesus as king, we will struggle with everything else he asks of you. Three statements. Three claims Jesus made. Pay attention. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know what that means? That there's only one way to the Father, that all truth come only from him, and that to live is to find him. He is your life. Hold that there for a second. That sounds good. Unless he tells you, I want you to give up this because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me give you a second statement. Self-assessment. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself on Monday and Tuesday, but Wednesday through Sunday you get a break. Is that what he says? No, he says, you must deny yourself 24 hours a day, seven times a week, 365 days a year. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, be willing to suffer, and follow me. Just, just bring that to your heart for a second. It gets even in a, in a culture in which we worship family. This is what he says. Anyone who loves their parents and or their kids more than him is not worthy of me, Jesus said. Doesn't that get super personal? One of the scholars I was reading, he says, he's claiming to have absolute unconditional authority over you, and he's demanding absolute unconditional alliance, alliance to himself. There could only be one king in town. It's either Jesus or you, but it cannot be both. All right. Don't you think that Jesus is a little bit too radical? I mean, Jesus, I know that you want me to deny myself and be surrendered to you, but like really in everything? See, I don't know if you remember... What Simeon says in Luke chapter 2, when he saw Jesus, he says, uh, chapter 2, verse 34, he says, Simeon blessed uh, Mary and Jesus, said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You know what that means? That Jesus comes as a king. And, you, and, and by nature, you're going to fight with the, with the concept within and that you only have two options. You either surrender to him as a king 
or he cannot be your king at all. That's radical. Once again, right from the beginning. The Gospel of Matthew tells you, if you can see Jesus like that, you don't have Jesus. That's how radical that call is. And that's why I think, for example, for modern people, modern Christians, it's so hard to embrace Jesus sometimes. See, we live in a culture that... um, Uh, Charles Taylor calls in his book, The Secular Age, he calls it the age of the era of the expressive individualism, the age of authenticity. You know what that means? He makes a whole study out of this, and he says that our understanding of who we are comes from the romanticism of the 18th uh, century, in which what matters most is what you think of yourself and what you feel about yourself. So his argument of a secular age is that there's a natural reaction against surrendering to anything that is imposed on us from outside by our society, by previous generations, by any religion, or by any political authority. Meaning that by nature, the secular society, without Jesus, cannot understand the concept that there's only one king in town. That is either Jesus... Or me. And I want to invite you, church, and I want to plead with you for a second to actually check every area of your life and ask the question Is Jesus truly my king in this area? Because my personal conviction, at least in my journey with the Lord, and what I see with saints that have love, that live for the Lord, is that it, they, if they don't understand that Jesus is king over every sphere in our lives, when Jesus asks you to do something radical for him, you won't be able to do it. Faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in big things. And faithful in the little things, you will not be able to be faithful in the big things. I'm pleading with you as a church that we allow Jesus to be king over every sphere in our lives. He's king over your money. He's king over your lifestyle. He's king over your time. He's king over your relationships. He's king over your politics. He's king over your theology. He is king over every area in your life that you would consider not so important. King. King, not just Savior. If he's king over the little things, he will be king over the major things. If that's not the case, if that's not your case, if that's not my case, when I have to make major decisions, the more our world gets more and more secular, the more this needs to be a reality for you and for me. Because if that's not the case, let me tell you what the king is going to be. If it's not King Jesus, then my opinions will be king. My feelings will be king. My desires will be king. My dreams will be king. Whatever I want will be king, but not King Jesus. Right from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us this must be true. This must be true for anybody who wants to take Jesus as a Savior. 
Let me share a, a little story about uh, my, my, uh, my mother. Um, so I, I come from a family of Christians. My grandfather was a Christian, uncles Christians, a bunch of people Christians. Um, so my mom grew up in a Christian home, but from age more or less 10 all the way to age 40, about 30 years, she completely walked away from the Lord. Um, around age 40-something, she gets this spiritual awakening. And at that time, even though we are all quote-unquote religious people, none of us actually have a relationship with Jesus. But the Lord is doing something amazing in her life, so and so much that the entire family can just see it. Now, I'm, I'm the older brother in the family, um, so I got to see this more than anybody. What is interesting, though, is that as I think about what my, what my mom was going through, this spiritual awakening, I started to notice that she was being very faithful. King Jesus was being king in all the little things in her life. So the way he was managing her time was so clear to me. Her little things, like reading the Bible, people. You know, I remember she's trying to, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, so please don't judge me. Before that, I'm not a Christian, right? So, so she's telling me, well, Hannibal, this is what I need to do with my money. And I'm like, really? Listen, I will get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to school, and I'll come back like at 12 o'clock at night, and I would always find my mom sitting in the same corner, dealing with the same Bible, struggling with Jesus. And it was so evident to me that my mom was willing to surrender every sphere of her life to this King Jesus. Two years after that spiritual awakening, my mother understands that the Lord is calling her uh, to join this nonprofit uh, organization as a missionary. Now, listen up. No salary, no specific hours of working, meaning that she worked since the moment she got up to the moment she went to sleep. She had to give up everything she had her car, her house, and I want to say even her family. Now, at that time, I remember that the pastor telling the mom, Mom, I think this is too much, man. I know you love Jesus, but this is too much. And I'm convinced that because she was faithful in the little things, she was willing to be faithful in the big things, and she sacrificed it all. And I guarantee you that part of the reason why I get to preach this sermon today is because I got to see that. Yeah, give him glory. Jesus is calling you and calling me to see him, embrace him, accept him, and surrender to him as king, like a good king, a king that uh, loves and cares and protects and guides, and is a God of mercy and a, a, a king of grace, but he's also a king that demands complete submission to him. That's why Jesus is a new and better king. Because if he's king, then I'm not. If he's king, then you're not. That's point number one. Two more hours to go. Point number two. <laughs> Jesus not only is a new and better king, but Jesus brings a new and a better kingdom. Now, one of the things that happens once you, and I know that many of you guys already experienced this, but one of the things that happens when you, when you start to see Jesus as king is that you start to see everything through his perspective, right? 
It's almost like wearing a new pair of glasses. Let's say color glasses. If the glasses are yellow, then everything in your life looks yellow. If the glasses are red, then everything in your life looks red. Now, it's important that we understand that we all have, by nature, because of our sinful nature, a set of glasses, how we read life. A set of glasses that have been shaped by our personal experiences, by our history, by our family, by our traditions, by the things we have learned. No one in this room, no one worshiping with us online is as objective as you think you are. We have all been shaped by something. Christian growth happens when we start, when we learn how to identify what are my glasses and what are Jesus' glasses. That's part of what it means to grow in a relationship with Jesus. It's about learning how to interpret life through the lenses of Jesus. And one of the areas that gets affected or shaped by the glasses of Jesus is how we think of not only him, but how you think of yourself and how you think of people. In other words, how we think about the kingdom people. So let me ask you a question. What kind of people did Jesus come to rescue? And what kind of people does Jesus use? Now, if you were reading the text with me, uh, you know that the text says that when Herod died, the angel, of the, Lord, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph again, and he tells Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to the land of Israel. But as he's making his way over there, Herod, uh, Herod's son takes uh, the position of power, and history tells us that he was worse than his father. That's why the text says that Joseph was afraid of going there. Now, when that happens, once again, God speaks to Joseph through a dream, and he understands that he needs to go to a different place. In verse 23, it says that he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So what so was fulfilled, what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't know if you ever heard, you know, in, in our modern times, whenever we think of Christmas, Nazareth sounds like a nice and cozy little beautiful town. But not for first century people. Actually, Nazareth, and to be a Nazarene in that context and in that time, was not a compliment. It was not something that you bragged about. Actually, Nazareth at that time is a place, and one of the commentators says it's a place of nobodies. A place where no one would want to live there. And to be called a Nazarene... Another commentator says, R.T. France, he says, that this was offensive and an insult. It's not, it's not like when people say, are you American? Nobody's going to take that offensive. But when people say, are you Nazarene? That was offensive. Do you guys remember what Philip uh, tells Nathaniel? When they find Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 46, he says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says in verse 46, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Tell me if that's not offensive. 
Tell, tell me if someone says, well, Hannibal is Colombian, and you respond, can anything good guy come out of Colombia? How do you think I'm going to take that? That tells you a lot about Nazareth and what he meant to be called a Nazarene. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that comes from a little town that nobody knows? And when you introduce yourself to them or they introduce themselves to you and you ask, where are you from? They don't say the name of the town, but they use the name of the largest, biggest city closer to their town. That happens all the time. Listen, my wife is from Guatemala. Right? I'm assuming that you guys know that Guatemala is in Central America, but just in case, I put it out there. <laughs> now, my wife is from the city of Guatemala, the capital, right? It's one of the biggest cities in Guatemala. But when I met my wife, I met a ton of other Guatemalans, and my question was always the same. What part of Guatemala you are from? Because not all Guatemalans are the same, the same way not all Mexicans are the same, the same way not all Latinos are the same, the same way not all white people are the same. So I say, what part of Guatemala are you from? And every time they would say the same answer, Guatemala City. Or Guatemala City, which sounds much better. <laughs> to the point that at one point I told Heidi, Guatemala City must be a ghost town. Everyone is here. <laughs> well, I learned that there is this stigma in Guatemala, that if you say that you belong to one of those little towns, people will look at you differently. That's exactly what's happening here. Nobody would say that you come from Nazareth. From Nazareth. And if you wanted to convince people that Jesus was the true king, the king of Israel, you would never, ever, ever say that he's from Nazareth. So the question is this. Why would God use that city to talk about the future king, King Jesus? Why would God make a connection between this city of nobodies to choose the place where Jesus would come from? So here's the answer. Listen up, church, because this is about kingdom people. Because God wanted to show us that the kingdom of God was, not, was going to be completely different to the way this world seeks kingdoms. Because the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Because God was going to bring salvation and bring salvation not through the elite, but through the nobodies. Because God makes beautiful things not through the ones that are in high social status, but through the unknown. Isn't that what the scripture shows in the rest of the scripture? Isn't this the reason why God many times didn't work through the older brother, but through the younger brother? He worked through Abel, not Cain, through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau, through David, not his brothers, and through Joseph, not his brothers. Isn't this the reason why God elevated women that nobody else would pay attention to? Women rejected by society and by their husbands. Isn't this the reason why he chose Sarah, not Hagar, Leah, not Rachel? Isn't this the reason why he chose Rebecca, Hannah, and Elizabeth, all rejected by society, many of them because they didn't have a kid? Isn't this the reason why he chose the Israelites? Listen, when you are frustrated with yourself because you continue to struggle with many things, don't lose hope. 
You know how is it that you don't lose hope? Just read the Old Testament. Pay attention to the Israelites, and you will see that they were unfaithful, dysfunctional, rebellious, and stubborn. And you finish reading that, and you say, man, I'm not that bad. <laughs> Isn't this the Israelites? Isn't this the group of people where Jesus comes from? Isn't this the reason why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Brothers and sisters, think of, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were called wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things that are... Um, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast. See, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. So if you are here and you are broken, needy, and flawed, that's great news, church. You qualify. (laughs) If you think that you have it all together, you won't make it. Upside-down kingdom. Only the ones that know that we are weak can be used by God because then we know that he has to work in us and he has to work through us. But not us, him. And if that is true, church, then that also means that as a church, as a practical application, we cannot allow any kind of partiality in our midst. We don't value people because of their accomplishments, because of what they have or don't have. We treat people with honor and respect because they have been created in the image of God and because our God is is not a God of partiality. See, that's why Jesus is the new and better king. And this is why Jesus brings a new and better kingdom. Can you see the connection between the first point and the second point? See, if you are worried about you being your king, then you will worry about being recognized and admired and respected and honored and valued and elevated. But if you remember that Jesus is king and that king pays attention to someone like you, that's your identity, that's your power, that's enough. Not only Jesus brings this new and better king, and not only he brings this new and better kingdom, But Jesus is this new and better everything. Now, I told you that you were going to hear that phrase time and time again. And the reason why I chose that phrase is because I think that that's how the entire Bible talks about Jesus. Did you notice the word fulfilled three times in the text? So, for example, in verse 15, it says that Jesus was taken out of Egypt... And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then in verse 17, Matthew compares the coming of Jesus to something that Jeremiah had said when Rachel has lost her children. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And then at the end of Matthew, Jesus uh, says that Jesus... Uh, and the family, went and and lived in the town of Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. 
Now, Patrick uh, Schreiner, which is a scholar, says that the word fulfilled there can be translated as completes, fills up, or satisfies the story that began in Genesis. Do you know what that means? That the entire scripture finds completeness, uh, satis- satisfaction, and is filled up in Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 5, in, Matthew, in, in verse 15 of Matthew, he's comparing Jesus to Moses, Egypt, and the Exodus. Did you notice that? In verse 17, Matthew compares Jesus to the prophets, prophecy of Jeremiah and presents Jesus as the one that brings hope to the ones weeping. In verse 23, Matthew says that all the prophets somehow were pointing to Jesus. In other words, Matthew uses the word fulfillment to say that every character in the every major character in the Bible was pointing to Jesus, that every major event in the Bible was pointing to Jesus, that every major celebration in the Bible was pointing to Jesus. That at the end of the day, this King Jesus that brings this new and better kingdom is all over the scripture and everything points to him. Let me read this, something that I wrote, something that I modified from John Calvin and something that I modified from Jim, uh, Tim Keller. From this passage alone, it says that Jesus is the better Moses who escaped Egypt. He is the new and better David, the, king of, the, the true king of kings. He is the new and better Israel who was also called God's son. That was the name in the Old Testament for the Israelites. He was the, he, Jesus is the new and better Exodus who delivered people from slavery. Jesus is the new and better hope who comes to bring hope to the weeping. John Calvin, in uh, uh, 1500, around the 1500s, he says something similar. I'm going to use some of the stuff he says, and I'm making another, an, an adaptation of it. He says that Jesus is the new and better Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice. Jesus is the, the new and better Jacob, the watchful shepherd who uh, had such a great care for the sheep with his guards. Jesus is the new and better Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers. Jesus is the new and better sacrificer, uh, sacrificer and Bishop Melchizedek, who also offered an eternal sacrifice for once for all. Jesus is the new and better sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law and the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. Jesus is the new and better faithful captain and guide Joshua that lead us into the promised land. Jesus is the new and better David, bringing by his hand all rebellious people to subjection. Jesus is the better and new King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. Jesus is the new and better Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. And listen, an adaptation to what Keller says. Jesus is the new and better Adam, who passed the the test in the garden uh, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the new and better Abel, who though innocently is slain, his blood cries out from, for forgiveness and not condemnation. Jesus is the new and better Abraham, who answered the, the, the call of God to live the comfort, uh, his comfortable life to create a new uh, people of God. Jesus is the new and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, who, medita- who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the new and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the new and better Job, 
the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. His words, not my words. <laughs> Jesus is the new and better Esther, who didn't, risk, uh, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the new and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. Jesus is the new and better everything. Yeah, give him glory. And because Jesus is the true and better and the new and better everything, whatever you're longing for, he has. Whatever your heart aches, he has. Why wouldn't you trust him as a king? And why wouldn't you want to be part of his kingdom? He's the new and better everything. May the Lord grant us to see him just like that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your, for your spirit working through your word. We are grateful, Lord, that we don't have to be the kings of our lives and protect ourselves and defend ourselves and fight for ourselves. We are grateful, Lord, that we have a king that did all of, all of that for us and continues to do all of that for us. Could you please help us see him as king? Could you please help us to understand that we are kingdom people? Could you help us surrender to him? And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus, and we all say... What a great way to end our service. We're going to sing How Great Thou Art to celebrate who he is. We're going to sing verses 1 and 4. So let's stand together.
All right, before finishing our service, really quick. Um, in the spirit of service and knowing that the Lord is making all things new and just singing that our God is great, I want to invite you to display that glory, that beauty, that power in the way you serve in this church. As a church, we love one another, amen? And we serve one another, amen? Well, there's plenty of opportunities for you to serve here. So I'm, I'm inviting you to join us if, if, if um, I want to say if you have time, but just make time. I think that everyone here has gifts and abilities, and the Lord gave them to you for the sake of his glory and the sake, uh, for the glory of his name and the well-being of others. So we have open spaces in kids and student ministries that require your gifting. We have a needs in the, uh, uh, We also have needs with part of our students that have special needs, uh, our brothers and sisters that we love, that we want to serve well. Your gifts are required there. We have needs in a production team, all the tech, sound, all of these things. We, your gifts are required there. We need uh, your gifts with the ushers and the greeters, with the gifts of hospitality and you know, your kindness and your gentleness and your charisma. Um, we have so many different areas in the church that require your gifts and, uh, gifts and abilities. So I want to invite you to join us. I guarantee you that you will be used in, more, in, in amazing ways. So if you want to participate in that, please go to the website, wheatonbible.org slash volunteers, and just sign up, and the Lord will use you somehow. Amen? Amen. All right, let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. Our new and better king guarantees this for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And we all say, thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.